Now, our Bible reading this morning is taken once again from Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read from the verse 12 right down to verse 22. And this will probably be the last time in these studies that I'm reading this particular passage of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, I want to continue our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians. And my text today is taken from Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. And I want us to think of the theme today that I've entitled, Understanding the Wonderful Doctrine of Reconciliation. Now, this is a sort of a follow-on message from last week. And on that occasion, we focused on the preeminence of Christ in the work of reconciliation, based in chapter 1, verse 20. I told you then that the word reconciled is a Bible word. The word reconciled is used six times in the scriptures. The noun reconciliation is used some eight times, three of which are in the New Testament. And of course, the word reconcile itself is used 11 times. And it's a very, very important word. In fact, it's one of those great Bible words that's connected to the theme of redemption, the theme of regeneration, the theme of repentance, the theme of remission of sins. You see, only a person, an individual born again of the Holy Spirit, who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, knows their sins are forgiven, experiences and begins to grasp the wonder of what it means to be reconciled to God. Now last week we dealt with the subject of reconciliation, thinking of what it means. We looked at its source. Colossians 1 and 20 says, by him to reconcile thinking of Jesus Christ, the sole reconciliator of God's people. 
He's the agent, the means. Then we thought about the scope. Reconcile all things unto himself. What do the all things mean? Paul clarifies it for us. All things in earth and all things in heaven. And we thought about that. Discounting the doctrine, of course, of universalism. We close with thinking about the security of reconciliation and the sense of it. How it ought to impact in our lives. So today we're, we're just moving on as if we're taking another step or two. So I, I give you that introduction to refresh your mind. Here's another layer to this great doctrine. We want to think of the wonder of reconciliation. And I have three things that I want to bring home to your heart this morning. I want you to think of the need of reconciliation. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. I want you to think of the state of your condition. Think of the word sometime. It means once. It means formally. It speaks of a time in the history of your life. He's addressing the Colossian believers about their former horrible condition before God. They were in a horrible, lost estate. Paul's telling them, here's what you once were. Think of the word alienated. It means cut off. It means separated from God. He's saying you were like a foreigner to him. You, you were a stranger to God. You were estranged from him. You were like a stranger and foreigner to him, and he was a stranger and a foreigner to you. You were cut off from a life of close personal communion with him. Because at that time, you were not in a close personal relationship with him. You had no saving, personal, redeeming interest in Christ. Notice the words, and you. But this was not only true of the Colossian believers in their unregenerate state. This is true of all men and women outside of Jesus Christ. This is true of young people born into this world. In other words, it's true of us all. All of Adam's race falls into this category. All of Adam's race have this state and condition. They are born this way, born strangers and foreigners to God. That is, they don't know God. They don't want God in their life. They don't recognize him. They are, of course, not his dear children whom he has redeemed, even though they're creatures made in his image. Turn back there to Ephesians. Look with me at Ephesians 2, verse 12. Same thing was true of them, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. You see, Paul is saying here, here's the first step that you need to recognize, the first step of why individuals need to be reconciled to God. You're separated from him. You're estranged from him. You're cut off from a life of intimate fellowship with him. You're not in a saving relationship with him. But look at the text again. You see, there's a second reason why we need this reconciliation. 
Not only are we cut off, but notice the words, and enemies. In other words, we are positively his enemies. We are living in a state of defiance of him. A life of wicked, willful disobedience toward him. That is, we live fighting his rule for our lives. We live opposing his eternal purpose. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But sinful man doesn't live to glorify God or live to enjoy him. The thought, the mindset is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now I want you to think, young people, boys and girls, listen to me carefully. Think of a good, benevolent king. And that king is a kingdom. And in that kingdom, there's loads of subjects. And the king gives many good gifts to his subjects as they live out their lives. But despite his gifts, those subjects hate and despise him. They live in rebellion to his law. They reject and refuse his law. Now, what do you think the king should do? What way should the king react to defiant subjects that he's been good and benevolent towards? You see, that is the true state of the condition of every sinner. Outside of Christ, cut off from him, positively his enemy, you're really fighting against one who's your maker and creator. Fighting against one who provides everything that you need in the journey of life, including your food and and the gift of breath, the family. Fighting against your benefactor, the one who just has a mindset to help you and do you good. Fighting against your king, heaven's king. Now that's the picture of everyone outside of Jesus Christ. And outside of Jesus Christ, that's the state that we're found in. And yet the opposite is true. You see, everyone who's found in Christ can raise a testimony and say with these Colossian believers, yes, that was my former state, but now. And we'll get to that in a minute. You see, we live in a day when men look in the outward appearance. In fact, it's not what God says to Samuel. Men look in the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And we see a man or woman and they're nicely dressed. They're well-spoken. They're highly educated. They might even be good-looking, far better looking than me. They've got good facial expressions. They are greatly gifted. They're highly skilled. They've got great talents and gifts. Maybe they could throw a ball a certain distance, or maybe they can kick a ball into the back of the net and score a goal. And and we, we think of the wonderful things that men can do. And the wonderful things that women can do in a variety of fields. Education, engineering, medicine. But you see, it's all wrapped up in the outward. And we forget that that talented person who looks good and sounds nice, that individual who's very pleasant and sincere, can be living a life being separated from God in a wicked state of constant rebellion. They are against Christ and against all that Christ is in his person and work. And they use all that the Lord has given them to oppose him 
That's what I'm saying. They're in a constant warfare against him. They are his enemies. And as such, then, they're going about to establish a kingdom other than Christ's kingdom on earth. So I asked the question, is this true of you? Can you see your state and true condition before God? Have you recognized it? Have you repented of it? Have you repudiated it? Have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? See, I say to you young people, let's just make sure that you're not taking the benefits and the blessings that God has given, but living in rebellion to him. Because that's what many are doing. And many, even the body that God has given, with all its health and strength and every blessing, they're using that body as an instrument to, to sin against him. Here's the need for reconciliation because of the state of our condition. But I want you to think of the sphere of this condition. Look at the text again. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now, that's very important. In your mind refers to the understanding. And the mind or the, the reasoning is connected very closely to the will. And you see, men reason in their minds. We're going to reject the revelation of God, not only in creation, but also reject special revelation. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible's true. I don't believe this and that that's taught in the scriptures. They not only reject the revelation of God, but they reject the rule and reign of God in their lives. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Will not of this man to reign over us. That's the mindset. And of course, they reject the redemptive purposes of God. I'm not going to repent and for sin and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And they reject God's riches. All the things that he has. They reject. See, sin starts. In the mind, reasoning to reject what God says. And does not take us back to Genesis chapter 2 and in the verse 17. Remember what God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And it was connected to what the Lord had said. And what is the very thing Adam did? He reasoned. To reject what God had said. And of course he was tricked. We remember through the duplicity and subtlety of the devil. And that first temptation with Eve. You see, individuals today want to create a God of their own understanding. And their own imagination. They can live comfortably with their own God. It's of their making. But they reject the God of the Bible. His revelation, his reign, his redemptive purposes, and his riches. Many of them pay lip service to it. Many happily add to that revelation. Many happily take away from it. They think, well, I've done a few bad things. I've made a few mistakes in my life, but I'm not as bad as the Bible makes out. Separated from God? Positively, his enemies need to be reconciled. I don't think so. You see, human reasoning kicks in. And it, it rejects this doctrine of salvation. Human reasoning, of course, does what individuals want to do. 
And such reasoning then leads to the will to act accordingly. And that will then expresses itself, the Bible says, in wicked works. Enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's the works of the flesh. It's the fruit of a mind set against the Lord. And this is what Paul is saying. Now that was your former state. Look again at the text. It says, yet now hath he reconciled. Here's your past lifestyle. But here's a present lifestyle. Yet now hath he reconciled. See the words yet now? That's the hinge. Here's a striking contrast. You who were living in rebellion, you now have been reconciled. You were living in a godless state, guilty of wicked works. Yet now in grace there's been such a a dramatic intervention of the saving grace of God. You're now reconciled to him. It's wonderful, of course, when you think of the butts of the Bible I remember Dr. Douglas preaching a series of messages on the butts of the Bible. And um, one of those messages, of course, is Romans chapter 3. Listen to the word of God. Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever things, soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There's one of the butts of the Bible. I've already alluded to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. It says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh. By the blood of Christ. Do you see the contrast? A striking contrast. A former state. And now a new state. And how did it come about? But or or yet now. In other words there's been a dramatic intervention of God's saving grace. That has brought about this change of state. We could think of the supply of this condition. It says in the text, yet now hath he reconciled. Formerly alienated in a state of perpetual rebellion. That's what you all once were. Yet now, you're now in a state where you're reconciled. In a state of closest possible relationship, closest possible friendship and communion. And how's that come about? Who has supplied this? Yet he. And it's a reference, of course, to Jesus Christ, the great reconciliator. There's the need for reconciliation. I want you to think, secondly, the nature of reconciliation. If you think of the strength of this word reconciled, let's think about the power of reconciliation. You see, the force of this hinge causes us to consider that the hostility and the enmity that was once there is now gone. And now we have confidence to draw near to God. We have boldness to enter into the holiest of all, 
Turn over there to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. You hear me often quoting this in prayer, having therefore brethren bones to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, now we'll pause there. You see the word boldness in verse 19, it means confidence. It's connected to the words in verse 22, full assurance. You see, regards the entrance to God's throne room, coming near to God, we can have a full confidence. We can come joyfully, delightfully. Oh yes, we come penitently and humbly, but we have no fear of being turned away back. No fear of being told stop. No, no fear of being shut out. Why? Because ultimately, Christ is our confidence. If you look at our text, Colossians 1, notice verse 22. Yet now hath he reconciled, how did he do it? In the body of his flesh through death. You see, it's upon his incarnation. His sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his glorious ascension, his life of intercession. Because he is our confidant, and this is the ground of our confidence, we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God because Christ is there. He's at the throne room, and we are in him. So we are as near to the throne of God as he is. Remember, now we've been reconciled. The hostility and enmity is gone. We are now in saving union with him. And therefore we can enjoy this nearness. As I've said, the hostility and the enmity and the alienation, the separation is all gone now. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that peace with God is twofold. It's not only subjective, tranquility of heart, and that's a blessed truth in itself, but it's objective. The peace with God has come about because the heavenly confidant is there at his right hand. It's in this ground that we have peace with God. It's the peace of a truly justified state. The hatred is gone. All hostility, enmity, and estrangement is gone. We now have a new heart. And what is the opposite of hatred? It's love. And the Bible says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us and gave his son for us. That he might be the propitiation of our sins. It's a total reversal of the former state. There's the power of reconciliation in its nature. You've got to think of that. Think also of the price of reconciliation. Look again, in the body of his flesh through death. What does that mean? In speaks of identification. Um, in the house. In the ark. In Christ was one of Paul's favorite words. In fact, he used it over 90 times. And it means to be in, our, in a saving union with him. So it has to speak with identification. 
Notice the words here, in the body of his flesh. That, that speaks of the incarnation. And then we'll add the words, in the body of his flesh through death. There is his vicarious atonement. There is, is his propitiatory sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the only begotten, the eternal Son of God, identifies himself with us. He, he took to himself a real, true human body, a real flesh and blood body. He's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And in that body, he came to bleed and die. And in that body, he offered himself a once and for all substitutionary sacrifice to God. That's why Hebrews says in 10 verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And I'm glad I can tell you in this 11th of July morning that I believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. Great is the mystery of Godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now I emphasize that for this reason. Many clergymen and even some professing evangelical pastors do not believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. They don't believe in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But you see, apart from the incarnation, let's say it didn't happen, that there was no real virgin birth, then you see, apart from that incarnation and virgin birth, there would be no sinless life, and there would be no atoning death and there'd be no offering of a once and for all propitiatory sacrifice to appease and satisfy the holy wrath of a holy God and if that didn't happen there'd be no reconciliation reconciliation and I want you to understand this in its nature has only come about because of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice on the cross And if you could grasp that, and if the propitiatory sacrifice was necessary, then it presupposes the sinless life, it presupposes the virgin birth, it presupposes the incarnation. One is built onto the other. They, they, they interpenetrate each other, even though they're separate doctrines. I want you to think not only of the price of reconciliation and the power but I want you to think of the peace of reconciliation. You see, whenever the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he not only offered himself a propitiatory sacrifice, but he offered himself as a peace offering. It ties into the peace offering that's mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Now, we haven't time to turn to it this morning. It's quite a lengthy chapter, Leviticus 2 and 3, but there's five offerings there, and every offering is connected to Christ and presents a particular aspect of Christ's um, life and work. So one of these offerings, young people, is called the peace offering, and it highlights the cross work of Christ in reconciling sinners to God. And it's unique. It's unique for this reason. So whether it was a lamb, a bullock, or a pigeon, it was unique for this reason. Part of it was consumed on the altar. Part of it was consumed by the priest. He took a portion to himself. So he, he partook of that portion. And part of it was consumed by the offerer himself. The person who come to confess their sin. The person who come to worship God believing that he needed a blood atonement to come near to the Lord. And if you put it all together, in that peace offering, God is satisfied. The priest was satisfied for he had a part. And the sinner was satisfied, for he had a part. 
And that's a wonderful picture. Notice all satisfied through the one same sacrifice. And what was true of the peace offering in the Old Testament is true of Jesus Christ as his body hung on the cross and as he shed his precious blood. On the ground of that, peace was made. Peace with God, objectively. And on that ground then, we could be justified. Therefore being justified by faith, what have we got? Peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father was satisfied with Christ once and for all sacrifice. Christ himself saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied, Isaiah 53. And we partake of that sacrifice because we're found in union with him, in identification with him. We enjoy this reconciliation, this powerful truth, this truth that was purchased. The price was paid, paid in the physical body of Christ so we can enjoy and partake of all the benefits by faith in union with his mystical body. Notice also in the nature of reconciliation, the purpose. If you look again at our text, it says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So there's three purposes. There's a unique purpose and goal to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And there's an ultimate purpose and goal to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. In other words, here's the effect or here's the impacts of Christ reconciling propitiatory sacrifice. There's an effect now. And there's effect in the future eternal state. The purpose of this propitiatory reconciling sacrifice was to present you and I holy before God. In other words, we needed to be saved and cleansed from our sin and separated from a life of sin unto God. Saved from sin's penalty, sin's power, sin's pleasure and sin's presence. To present you unblameable. That is without spot and without blemish. Now it's not talking about sinless perfection. I don't believe in sinless perfection this side of eternity. But it presents you in a state where God does not see your sin. Do you know that the Bible actually tells us in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 through to 21. I think it's in verse 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Isn't that amazing? You see, were the children of Israel not spoken to about their sinful lifestyle? Were they not reproved for their unbelief? Was God not justified in pointing out their many sins that disobeyed his law? Absolutely. But then how could the Bible say he had not beheld iniquity in Jacob? And it's for this reason. Somebody was trying to curse them. Somebody was trying to condemn them. And you see, their sin was covered under the power of the blood. And God makes a promise, thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And despite those that come to curse and those that come to condemn, God sees that individual and their sin under the power of the blood. And in that context, then he says, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Remember, Balaam, of course, was hired by Balak to curse God's people. And he discovered he couldn't do it. Why? Because God didn't see the sin. The sin was under the blood. And that's what that means. 
without spot and blemish so that God doesn't see it. And then he adds this, unreprovable. Beyond the charge. Beyond accusation. Turn over there as we close to Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words in verse 33. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. You see, God's people cannot be cursed. Or charged falsely. They can't be condemned. Why? Because it's Christ who died. Christ who rose again. Christ is at the right hand of God. Christ who lives to make intercession for us. Here's four great pillars, four great truths that that render it impossible to reprove the people of God. And this is our state now in Christ. And of course, this is unique. But this is the ultimate goal and purpose for which we are reconciled. So in the nature of reconciliation, see the power, what it actually means, confidence to come near to God. I want you to see the price in the body of his flesh through death. I want you to see the peace because it's connected to being satisfied, God and Christ satisfied and us satisfied with him. And here's the purpose, threefold and ultimate but a unique design. I want you to think lastly, and we'll finish with this. I, I couldn't think of another end, and I wanted to keep the alliteration, the nicety of reconciliation. Notice the words in the text as we finish, and you, and then we'll link it up with the words in verse 22, to present you. You see, This is personal. And I just ask again, is this your testimony? Is this my testimony this morning? Could I speak of a time when I lived in a former state, yet now I'm in a state of reconciliation to God? This is not only personal, folks, but this is a privilege. The weakest believer, the trembling saint, the struggling individual, the person who's fighting a battle and feels he's losing it against sin. You see, this state, holy state, this unblameable, this unreprovable state, this cannot fail because this is already happening now in, in the eyes of God and there's no possibility of failure because God is at work in our lives. And if we're reconciled to him, even though we're weak, trembling saints with all the failures and folly of, of our own uh, lust towards sin, it's a privilege to be part of God's family and to be reconciled to him. Could I tell you something else that's permanent? It's unique, I've already told you that, because it's happening now. If you're in Christ. But ultimately it's going to happen. In all the fullness of this. Towards eternity. This is permanent. And this is a perfect state. That will eventually be brought into. The full realization. The joy and the delight. Of this experience. The nicety of reconciliation. Is it personally yours? Do you realize what a privilege, a permanent state that's ultimately perfected 
through Christ and glory. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. I, I count it a privilege to preach the word of God to you every time I can.